Father in heaven, um, that last song reminded us that the name that you have exalted above every other name is the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, you have not exalted my name. You have not exalted the name of anyone in this congregation. You have not exalted the name of anyone we hear on the radio or see on TV. Lord, you have exalted the name of Jesus Christ alone. He alone is worthy to be praised and to be honored and to be worshiped, Lord. Please forgive us for when we seek the honor of our own name and we could care less about the honor of our Savior's name. Lord, make us those who don't care what others think or have to say about our own name, but may we be zealous for the name of Jesus. Lord, make us eager to make him known and to to see other people worship him as he deserves to be worshipped. Lord, I confess personally I have a long way to go in that. And Lord, we just ask that you would change us through your word this morning, that you would not let us stay the same, that you would humble us, that you would grow within us a love for our Lord and the honor of his name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we're looking at verses 18 through 23. So we'll finish chapter 3, Lord willing, today. Let me read that for us, and I'll actually start back up in verse 16. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Paul writes, Do you not know that you are a temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish, so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. So then, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Have you ever had something happen to you that in the moment you thought was something terrible, but in the end it turned out to be something good? And you wished you had known beforehand that it was something good because it would have made it a lot easier to live through that moment. Well, the Apostle Peter experienced something like this. I want to read from the, uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. Verses 21 to 23. Matthew 16, 21 to 23. Jesus gives the disciples what appears to Peter to be very bad news, something he does not want to hear. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, 
God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. So that's quite a rebuke that the Lord gave to Peter, and it does not seem that that rebuke sunk in very deep into Peter's mind because when the time came for Jesus to be betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, instead of acquiescing to that because he knew that was what the Lord said was going to happen, instead Peter whipped out his sword and took a swing at somebody's head in order to prevent from happening what Jesus was clearly intent on having happen. And I wonder if a couple days later, on that first Resurrection Sunday, I wonder if Peter wished he had known Friday night what he now knew on Sunday. The thing is, Peter could have known. He should have known Friday night that something incredibly good, though excruciatingly painful, was happening. He should have known because Jesus had told him multiple times But why did Peter not know? Well, Jesus tells us why in chapter 16 of Matthew, verse 23. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. That is what blinded Peter from seeing the eternal good that was happening that Friday night. And something very similar was happening to the Corinthians. They were setting their mind not on God's interests, but man's. And in the words of Paul, they were walking by the wisdom of the world rather than walking by the wisdom of God. And that was blinding them. And if we are not careful, it will blind us also. And then this passage that we're looking at back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 to 23, Paul will tell us two ways that we are to take that blindfold off and keep it off. Two ways. And the first we'll see in verses 18 to 20. That first way to keep that blindfold off, to take it off, is this. Do not deceive yourself. Do not deceive yourself. That is what Paul commands us in these verses. After having warned the teachers at Corinth and the whole congregation in verses 10 through 17, which is what we looked at Last week, it was quite a warning Paul gave them, he then gives them valuable instructions on how to steer clear of the consequences of destroying the temple of God, the church. Because that is what they're doing. They are ripping the church apart by their quarreling. And Paul does not want them to fall under verses 16 and 17. And so he tells them how to stay away from that in verses 18 to 23. Look at what he says in verse 18. He starts out by saying, Let no man deceive himself. Self-deception is something that every believer needs to guard against. We can so easily deceive ourselves. Even just preparing this message, you know, we, we read a warning like that and we start to think, who does this apply to? And, you know, names, faces come to mind, and then the Lord says, hold on, look at yourself. Let no man deceive himself. We often think that we are wiser than we really are, more holy 
than we really are, more humble than we really are. We often think that we are standing securely when in reality we are about to stumble and we act shocked when we fall into grievous sin and we ask ourselves, how did this happen? Not realizing that it was actually a long time in coming. In chapter 10, verse 12, Paul will reiterate this command by saying, Therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed that he does not fall. In other words, don't deceive yourself. Now, what kind of self-deception did these Corinthians need to be careful to guard themselves against? Well, he goes on in verse 18. He says, If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age. We'll stop right there. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age. There were those among the Corinthians who had fallen into thinking that what they valued when they were unbelievers was still appropriate for them to value as believers. They were still subscribing too much to what the world considers to be important. Social status, worldly achievement, selfish pleasure and comfort, no matter who it hurt. If they were able to gain these things for themselves in the church, they thought they were doing well. If they achieved an elevated status in the church, they thought they were doing well. They thought they were wise. But Paul says, you're wise in this age, not in the one to come. That is the mindset of the unbelieving world, not the mindset of a believer who has been saved by a crucified Christ. That is the world's wisdom, not God's wisdom. And Paul needs these believers to understand that if they adopt worldly values, if they adopt worldly wisdom, they will not be able to follow after Christ because following Christ involves following in his footsteps. Nolan read from 1 Peter, Jesus gave us an example for us to follow in his steps. And what was that? Going to a cross, dying to yourself, dying to your selfish desires. So Paul says in verse 18, if any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. If they truly want to be wise, they must abandon the wisdom of the world. They must abandon worldly values. They must be willing to be seen as fools by the world for doing so. Only then will they be able to possess true godly wisdom. And Paul here, he's simply issuing the same call that Jesus issued to all who would be saved and follow after him. If you would go back to Matthew chapter 18... Paul's saying, give up the world's wisdom so that you may gain God's wisdom. Jesus uses different words. Matthew 18, verse 3. Well, let me start in verse 2. And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Then go back to Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 to 39. 
Matthew 10, verse 37, Jesus says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. That is the call of discipleship. That is true Christianity. That is real life in the church. Worldly wisdom, though, says you need to try and get as much of this world as you can get. But Jesus says you need to die to your life in this world that you may receive life in his kingdom. A self-exalting church, a self-seeking church is not the church of Christ crucified. And for the Corinthians to bring worldly wisdom into God's church is to destroy God's church, resulting in God destroying them. Paul, as he often does back in 1 Corinthians 3, goes on to prove what he's just said by pointing to the Old Testament. Uh, back in chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, you'll remember Paul spent time explaining how the world views God's wisdom. How does the world view Christ crucified? They view that as foolish. But here, in verse 19, what does Paul say? He flips it around. How does God view the world's wisdom? God views the world's wisdom as foolish. Now, whose opinion has more weight? He says, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. Foolishness before God. And Paul says this is not new for God. It's not as though God has had a change of heart and he now views the wisdom of the world this way. He shows us from the Old Testament that God has always had this attitude toward worldly wisdom. And he quotes first from Job chapter 5, verse 13. He says, For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. Now what does that verse mean? It means that God ensnares the worldly wise by the very same nets that they cast to trip up other people. God catches them by their own nets. A great example of this is the man named Haman in the book of uh, Esther. You remember he came up with this scheme to kill Esther's cousin Mordecai because Mordecai would not bow down before him. And Haman was so confident that he could kill Mordecai, he had a gallows constructed for Mordecai. But the Lord providentially ordered events so that Haman's wickedness was exposed. And who was the one who ended up getting hung on those gallows? It was Haman. By his own net, the Lord caught him. By his own craftiness. What the worldly wise think to be wisdom is actually foolishness. And God shows it to be foolish by using their own worldly wisdom to destroy them. Then in verse 20, Paul gives another proof. This one is from Psalm 94, which we read from in our call to worship, verse 11. He says, And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. If you remember back to our call to worship, the verses that were leading up to that verse in Psalm 94 spoke of the wicked sinning, 
however they pleased. And they were reasoning to themselves that God does not see. He does not know. He does not take heed what they're doing. How foolish. Verse 11 says, oh, God knows. God sees. God laughs at the plans of the worldly wise. A balloon filled with helium has more weight than the schemes of wicked men trying to achieve their own goals and their own selfish desires with no regard for God. Worldly wisdom blinds men to the truth. Just like Peter got blinded because he was setting his mind on man's interests. And the more that these Corinthians walk by that kind of worldly wisdom, the more blind they will become to the truth and the less and less they will be able to humbly follow the crucified Christ. And so Paul says, let no man deceive himself. Now there are generally two categories of professing believers. There are those who examine themselves too much. That is, their disposition tends toward morbid introspection. They look too much at their own hearts and not enough to Christ. The second group is composed of those who have the opposite problem. They don't examine themselves enough. They think they are just fine with the Lord, and they rarely give a thought to examining their hearts or to inspecting the fruit of their lives to see if the Christ they profess is really a living reality in their lives. And it's that second group of people that Paul is writing to. These Corinthians thought they had arrived. They thought they were at the summit of spiritual progress, that they didn't need to examine themselves. They didn't need to be humble. Are you in that second group? Paul says to you, do not deceive yourself. If you think you should be honored in the church because of your position, because of your privileges, because of your knowledge or your talents or your financial contributions or your long-standing attendance or your position in the community, you are thinking the way the world thinks. And you are in danger of not being able to follow the crucified Christ. And rather than being a blessing to the church, you are destroying the church. You are an infectious wound to the church. And that infection cannot help but spread, imperiling the existence of this church and imperiling your own soul. Paul says to you, you must become a fool so that you may become truly wise. And if you're thinking, wow, so-and-so really needs to hear this, stop thinking that. This passage is first addressing you. You need to hear this. I need to hear this. That's what the Lord impressed upon me as I was getting this message ready. I need to be careful not to deceive myself. So that is the first way we are to take that blindfold off. The second way we find in verses 21 to 23... And it's the command we see in verse 21. Do not boast in men. Do not boast in men. The fact that the Corinthians were walking in worldly wisdom was being demonstrated by their prideful boasting in men. And why were they doing that? They were doing that in order to achieve a higher status for themselves 
in the church over against one another. Paul is showing them that that kind of behavior is in keeping with self-deceiving, blinding, worldly wisdom. So they need to stop. Verse 21 says, So then let no one boast in men, or let no one glory in men. They were glorying in men instead of in Christ. One commenter, I was reading Charles Hodge, it struck me what he said about this phrase, let no one boast or glory in men. He said, quote, to glory in any person or thing is to trust in him or it as the ground of confidence or as the source of honor or blessedness. It is to regard ourselves as blessed because of our relation to it. And by saying, that's the end of the quote, by saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, these believers were looking to a mere man to be the source of their honor and their blessedness instead of looking to Christ. And Paul says, stop doing that. Let no one boast in men. Why? Verse 21 goes on. For all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you. Paul is saying they must stop declaring, I am of Paul. I belong to Paul. Because the reality is that Paul belongs to them. Worldly wisdom has turned their thinking entirely upside down. They have everything backwards. They are pinning their hopes and dreams on Paul or Apollos or Cephas. And they're bowing down to these men, boasting in these men, thinking that these men can make them somebodies in the church and in the world. When the reality is these men are mere servants of theirs. And Paul doesn't stop there. Not only does he say that I belong to you, he says all things belong to you, Corinthians. The world, life, death, things present, and things to come. He's telling them, you already possess everything. So stop looking to me as if I can give you something that you still lack. I'm not able to give you anything, and even if I could, there is nothing more I could give you than what you already have. The Corinthians in Christ had it all, but they were acting like there was something more to be gained, something in this world that they needed. They already had it all. And this is true for you and me as well, if we know Jesus Christ. Now at this point you might be thinking, Paul, you're crazy. I don't know what you're talking about. If I really had everything, I wouldn't be so miserable. I'm unhappy with my job. I'm unhappy in my marriage. I'm unhappy with my kids. I'm unhappy with my role in the church. I'm unhappy with my standing in the community. I'm unhappy with my health. I'm unhappy with my looks. I'm unhappy with my financial position. I'm unhappy, I'm unhappy, I'm unhappy, and I'm sick and tired of it. Now Paul's response to you would likely be something like this. Stop thinking like an unbeliever. 
Stop walking by worldly wisdom. You are so discontent because you think that this world can satisfy you. But this world and its wisdom is passing away. So stop chasing what you can get in this world. Worldly wisdom can only give you more of this world. And this world is passing away. You need to trade that in for God's wisdom. Because only God and his righteousness can satisfy you. When you come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he lived a perfectly righteous life in the place of sinners, he suffered and died for the sins of sinners, and he rose from the dead in order to justify sinners, when you believe that and you abandon all your sin and all your attempts to save yourself, and you entrust yourself to Jesus alone to rule you and to save you, God gives you the world. But God does not give it to you because you earned it, or because you demanded it, or because you manipulated and schemed your way to it. That's the way the world gets things. He gives it to you because his son earned it for you. That is why Paul says, all things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. The only reason why you as a Christian possess all things is because you are possessed by the one who owns all things, and purely by his grace, he has allowed you to enjoy sharing in his inheritance. Hebrews had a lot to say about that. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, says, In these last days God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of what? Of all things, through whom also he made the world. Then go over to chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting for him, speaking of God the Father, It was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation, Jesus, through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, speaking of the incarnation, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted." 
And then lastly, chapter 5, verses 5 through 10. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. As God, Jesus, being the Son of God, he's always owned everything. But 2,000 years ago, the Son of God took on flesh and he became a man in order to become, as a man on behalf of men, the heir of all things. When Paul says that Christ belongs to God, there in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 3, when he says that Christ belongs to God, he is speaking in reference to that humanity of Jesus, a humanity that as God he took upon himself in order to redeem man and to become the Christ, the genealogical son of David, the Messiah whom God promised David would sit on his throne forever. Jesus became a man to become the heir of all things as the God-man so that his people could share in his inheritance. But what path did Jesus take to arrive at the place where he was exalted by the Father and was given as the heir of all things the name that is above every name? That path led straight through the cross. And so, since that is the case, should it be any surprise to us that our path to enjoying this inheritance with him would not also lead through a cross? Let me go to Romans 8, because I'm still I'm developing the answer to you who say, what is Paul talking about? I own all things. What is he talking about? I don't see that. Go back to Romans 8. We read the first 17 verses. Let me read uh, verses 16 and 17 again of Romans 8. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. But there's a condition there at the end of verse 17. What does that say? If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. We share in the sufferings of Christ as his people. Then drop down to verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Notice that phrase, all things, there again. That is what Paul says belongs to us in Christ, being a co-heir with him. All things belong to us. But we say this life is painful. I don't see how I'm enjoying 
possessing all of these things. But in Romans 8, 28, God tells you how you are receiving benefit from all things, even though it's painful. Because God causes all things to do what? To work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Even the painful things are for your benefit because it is working together for your eternal good. Verse 29, for, back in Romans 8, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become what? Conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us, what? All things. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Those are pretty serious things. How is it that those things will not separate us from the love of God? It's because those very things belong to us as the co-heirs with Christ. And God is using those things to accomplish what? According to verse 28, our good, our good. Verse 36, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. We should expect that because all things belong to us in Christ. Verse 38, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How is it that none of those things can separate us? It's because God is using all of those things to work together for our good. Those of us who love God and are called according to his purpose. And so back in 1 Corinthians 3, when Paul says, all things belong to you, Corinthians, and he says some pretty heavy things there, the world or life or death, how does death belong to me? Or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. How can Paul say that in the present tense? It's not only a future reality, it's a present reality. If you're a believer in Christ, you possess all things things. And that Romans 8 helps us to understand that the very things that often make us think that we do not possess all things are actually the very things that indicate we do own all things. When the world persecutes us and goes against us, God is using that for our good and his glory. When we come up against severe trials in our daily life, God is using that to make us more like his son. When we lose loved ones and the day comes when we face death ourselves, God is bringing those painful events that belong to us 
into our lives in his perfect timing and in his perfect way, and he is using even that to wean us from the delusion of worldly wisdom. Because all things belong to us in Christ, who has privileged us to share in his inheritance, we can trust that every event of the present and every event that will come upon us in the future, no matter how insignificant or traumatic and life-changing, we can trust that God will use that to produce for us an eternal weight of glory that will be for his everlasting praise and our everlasting good. All things belong to you. Do you see in what sense Paul is saying that all things belong to us even now? That situation that you're in, that you are responding to blindly with an attitude of discontent and misery, God wants you to take the blindfold off. And he he wants you to see that he intends to use that in your life for your eternal joy. And knowing that, whatever you're going through, you need to trust God and rejoice in the suffering. That does not mean that you pretend that things are easy. That doesn't mean that you cannot experience heartache and grief and even lament your situation and cry out to God for mercy in the midst of your pain, but it does mean that you can thank him for that suffering because he is using that, even that, for your good. Worldly wisdom cannot see that. Worldly wisdom rejects that reasoning. Worldly wisdom says, this world is all there is, so you need to get what you can out of it now. You only live once. Life is short. Make the most of it. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But take a look at Christ, and you will see that God's wisdom speaks differently. God's wisdom says you will live again. This life is short. The life to come is eternal. So give up your selfish desires in this short life to gain eternal life in Christ. I want to close with James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. James is on the exact same wavelength as the Apostle Paul when he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. How is that possible? How can I do that? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So don't look to anyone else to complete you. Don't look to your kids. Don't look to your spouse. Don't look to your job. Don't look to your friend down the road. All of these painful circumstances, if you are responding with discontent, it's because you are looking to those things to complete you and to satisfy you. And you need to become foolish. You need to buy in to Christ and him crucified. And if you do that, you will see that all of that pain is for your good. And you will stop trusting in that thing and you will put your trust in Christ and he will enable you to bear up under that cross 
to honor him, to suffer well, to be humble and godly as you follow in his footsteps. And you will reap what Christ has already reaped for you. Joy, eternal joy in his presence forever, worshiping him. So let's pray.